the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Good morning, Dr. Viennes, and welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. Dr. Viennes is a board-certified, fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon with specialty in foot and ankle. Today's episode focuses on athletic injuries of the ankle. Next on the list, high ankle sprains. High ankle sprains are not the most common thing, but usually when you see them, I mean, they have a BFF, a big fat foot and a big fat ankle. How do you know it's a high ankle sprain versus a more severe lateral ligament injury? And can you please touch on how you manage it and when you can get the athlete back to sports? They aren't as common, obviously, as lateral ankle sprains, but they definitely are not rare. My practice, I see them every week. And acutely, again, it just goes back to general orthopedic principles and anatomy. You know, where does the patient actually hurt? And do they hurt on the ATFL and the CFL down at the end of the fibula, or do they hurt more up the ankle in between the tibia and the fibula? And, and then maybe they hurt in both places, or maybe they hurt in the deltoid ligament also. Again, deltoid ligament over medially often does go along with at least severe high ankle sprains. You're going to be thinking about the deltoid too. Does a patient have pain up by their fibular head or neck near their knee? If you have somebody who has obvious high ankle sprain, syndesmosis injury on an x-ray where it's really wide, make sure you get x-rays of the whole tibia and fibula because they might not even hurt that much, but have a proximal fibular fracture. You're not going to be fixing that proximal fibular fracture, but that might explain why they hurt at their knee or they have perineal nerve symptoms, something like that. A syndesmosis like severe syndesmosis injury or one that's very obvious. Now that is pretty rare. Uh, There's something called a log splitter injury where the talus acts like a log splitter and just drives up between the tibia and the fibula. That's not common. It's certainly not common you're ever going to see that on an x-ray. I think I've seen it twice and that's easy. But what we're really talking about is the injury that's hopefully not unstable, but might have subtle instability. And that's the hardest thing with this syndesmosis is the subtle instability. There's no exam finding that's going to always find it. There's no x-ray finding that's always going to show you. You know, sometimes you will see it unless you do an ankle scope, which, you know, certainly is beyond the scope of the talk. But the point is that it's hard to, to diagnose. And if you aren't looking for it, you'll never diagnose it. Really looking where do they hurt is key. If you squeeze their leg, kind of the the distal aspect of the ankle, but above the ankle, does it hurt in the ankle? By doing that, squeezing the tibia and the fibula together, you can kind of windshield wiper at the joint if the ligaments are injured and that cause pain. Or anterior to posterior instability of it. So you can put your fingers around the fibula and kind of stabilize the ankle with the other hand. And, and you almost like doing a drawer test or something in the knee, you may be able to pull the fibula back and forth front to back. And that's often actually more commonly on the way that you're going to have the instability is, is on that kind of a test. Or sometimes you can take the talus, and this is pretty subtle, but you can, you can stabilize the ankle and, and shift the talus medial lateral, and you can feel it sort of rattling around in there. It's not the same as a tailored tilt, but that's another another way to look at it. But oftentimes it's just the history and where do they hurt? Do they have big a bunch of bruising between the tibia and fibula up the leg? It's going to be more a high ankle sprain. And high ankle sprain is going to take longer to heal. And 
you know, in some patients it can take months with an S, you know, it, it's not, it's not a quick one. Often you want to be avoiding rotation. So a tall boot usually can be pretty helpful for these patients. Again, they can weight bear. It's like ligament injuries. You know, weight bearing in a controlled fashion is, is good. It actually helps the healing. And then once it's sort of calmed down and if you aren't worried about instability, the patient's doing better, then you know, physical therapy and all those things that you would do for a lateral ankle sprain, you may be switching them over to like a lace-up ankle brace, that sort of thing. You know, not every high ankle sprain means you're out for months, but you definitely want to counsel patients that it, it might mean you're out for a lot longer. And you know, those are the ones you really, I would argue, even normal ankle sprains, getting in to see someone that specializes in ankles is a good idea, but high ankle sprains even more so. Anterior posterior drawer, the distal fibula and the acute high ankle sprain. I don't know how much somebody's going to let me do that, but the compression of the leg that you were talking about, I do it with both hands, kind of both palms and start kind of more proximal toward the knee and going down. And that seems to be very good at uh, defining it. Yep, it is. Another way you can do it is a cross leg. So you can sort of have them do a figure four almost and cross their leg and that pressure of their fibula resting on their knee often make it hurt, not specifically right where their knee's hitting their leg, but more down into the, in the ankle joint itself. But yeah, you're right. In an acute setting, oftentimes you won't be able to do that, but sometimes these patients will just come and they're just like, Hey, my, my ankle has been bugging me for a while. And, you know, subtle instability of the, of that joint is it's, it's not rare. The more we understand about the syndesmosis, the more we're probably finding it. Posterior tibialis tendonitis insufficiency. Do you recommend orthotics for the athlete for this problem? Assuming that they're symptomatic, then I think inserts and orthoses are not a bad idea. The key is, are they symptomatic? Like, do their feet hurt? Okay, if their feet don't hurt, but they're flat, it's fine. You know, they used to tell patients, oh, you can't, do this, you can't do that, you can't be in the military. Over time, we've understood that a lot better, that flat feet in and of themselves isn't necessarily a problem. It can be just a normal variant. But patients that have a painful flat foot, yeah, arch supports can help. But the key is, is their foot flexible or not? You know, if you have a patient who's got a a coalition, meaning, you know, a, a bony or, or fibrous connection between bones that limits their motion, and they've got a flat foot as a result of that. If you give them a, an insert that's trying to push up on their arch and give them an arch and is fairly rigid, it's often just going to make them feel worse because that foot isn't going to have an arch no matter what you do. So it would kind of be like standing there and pushing on the wall all day and the wall is not going to move. So your hand's just going to hurt. Well, in this case, your foot's not going to move, so it's just going to hurt if you've got something hard in your shoe pushing on it all the time. If you've got a flexible flat foot and, and when the patient's non-weight-bearing, it looks like they, they've got a little bit of an arch and their foot has got normal ankle motion and, and all that sort of thing, or you have them do heel rises and their heels invert and they, their arch reconstitutes then yeah, I think an arch support or orthoses are, are good. Now, whether they need to be custom or not, sort of depends. I try whenever possible to avoid the custom arch supports because they can be expensive and often insurance companies don't cover them and, and often patients don't necessarily need it. I find that you know, there's some good arch supports off the shelf that can be 
uh, obtained uh, often from pretty good sporting goods store or running store often has good options along the same lines. Sometimes patients don't even need a custom arch support. They just need the, the correct shoe and a shoe that's built to accommodate their foot. So going to a place that has a lot of options and knows about people's feet and isn't going to just sell you whatever looks cool or whatever's new, but really what's the right shoe for your foot can be just as useful or more useful than going and getting some arch supports. So that's sort of my take on it. And it'll matter too if one foot's different than the other, for example, you know, if they they've had an injury and one side's flat and the other one isn't, you know, maybe that's somebody who custom arch supports, et cetera, might be useful, but often that's not really what you're going to be dealing with in the athlete. Not never, but often not so much the case. Right. And I also found cleats. Runners, soccer players, cleats are made for stability. They're not really great for support. Right. And I see a lot of these things with people wearing cleats. So keep that in mind. Last topic, OCD lesions of the talus. Just wanted to talk to you a little bit about these because I see these not infrequently, but I do see them. How do you know if it's there? Let's say you get an x-ray, you don't see anything there, and they keep having pain, keep having pain. You have to image it. But sometimes you'll see them on the x-rays as well. But let's say you don't see it on the x-ray and you give them six weeks, rehab an ankle sprain, whatever. You're just not seeing it. And they still have pain clicking, similar findings. What do you do? So a couple of things. One, one thing to point out, and I've, I've had this sent to me several times from urgent cares, sometimes even people who know a decent amount about orthopedics sending me a quote avulsion fracture from the Taylor dome that can't happen because there is no ligaments that attach there so if you see a chunk off of the talus on an x-ray particularly like an ap x-ray it's not an avulsion fracture it's a fracture of your cartilage and it's a it's an ocd an acute one and that's something that you want to get in to see somebody sooner than later because you might even be able to primarily fix that so that's definitely not a follow-up in six weeks kind of a picture oh this is an avulsion fracture now that's not we're not talking about the lateral x-ray where you have a little chip off the tailored head or neck down by the navicular bone we're talking about a on an ap view you see something that looks like it's popped off of the talus that's something that's important to remember. There's no ligaments that attach to the Taylor dome. It's all cartilage. So if you see that, it's a cartilage injury and get it seen. Now, sometimes you'll see sort of a lucency on an x-ray in a patient who's had a chronic OCD or if it's large enough and the piece of the cartilage is knocked off, you can, you can see that and that, that can tip you off. But like you said, Sam, most of the time you won't see much on an x-ray. Now, in my practice, if patients have mechanical symptoms and, and we're like catching locking, they're going to get an MRI much sooner than later. It's almost like a displaced meniscus tear or something like that, where if you have true mechanical symptoms, that's real. Often there's something in there that isn't going to go away. So getting the information sooner than later is helpful. But Assuming that isn't the case and they just have tenderness in the joint and it's been, you know, four to six weeks after an ankle sprain, that's often when I will pull that trigger and get an MRI. If you know for sure there's a chondral injury, you could argue CT scan can be more helpful to see how much bone is, is there, how big the fragment is. But even then, some of us will end up getting a CT and an MRI. 
but that that's not really for the listeners to really worry about more the point is it can be complicated but if you know there's a fracture maybe a ct but i would i would say in general mri is going to be more the modality of choice uh, for looking at these sure so it's tender with a slight effusion in mechanical symptoms those are the main points that you're looking for yeah and surgery typically better sooner rather than later if you can catch it soon enough what about the the last question on this topic? What about return to sports? Let's say somebody has a defect and you have to go stabilize it surgically. Are they out for the season, for a year? How long does it take them to get back? Well, it depends. You know, a lot of the times these patients are patients who have ankle instability, right? Right. So if you don't do something about their ankle instability and you just deal with their cartilage, that's not good and you're probably going to have recurrence or it's probably not going to heal. and that, you know, you're probably more talking about um, how big of a surgery did they need, you know, were there perineals involved also and, and things like that. And maybe it is six months, maybe it's a year. Usually with cartilage injuries, you're going to give it a, a six months till you say, okay, it's not working or before you're going to try a, a second line kind of treatment for it on something fancier surgically um, than what you did the first time. But it doesn't mean that everyone that has an OCD that's treated with surgery is out for six months. You know, I've had some people get back to hiking pretty aggressively, you know, at three months, but oftentimes with an OCD, if you're doing a cartilage stimulating sort of procedure or grafting or any of those sort of things, you know, oftentimes you're going to have them non-weight bearing for a period of time potentially six weeks and then progressive weight bearing in a boot. And so there you're already at two months. So then you got to not only rehab them from the injury, but deal with the fact that they've been out for a long time and lost muscle tone, et cetera. So, you know, I think three to six months to get back to sports is not a bad estimate. It's, it sort of just depends on, depends on all that. Now, if a patient has a cartilage injury in a primarily non-weight bearing area, of say like the distal tibia anteriorly. Sometimes we won't even really try to get that to heal back. We'll we'll even just debride it and kind of carve out the tibia and make a little notch in the tibia just to get it back to stable cartilage. And you know, that patient I'm gonna get going and moving really quickly because I'm not really trying to get cartilage to heal. I, I basically cut out the bone area that was involved and move on their way. Same thing as if they have like a non-weight bearing lack of cartilage becomes a loose body and we take it out and we're not really doing a microfracture or, or something like that. You know, that patient, we're going to get moving likely right away and into, into physical therapy and almost physical therapy without restrictions. So, you know, kind of return to play as soon as tolerated, but that's more of a specialized situation that isn't usually what we're dealing with. Well, great information on the ankle. Dr. Vienz, thank you very much. I hope to get you back soon so we can talk some more about foot injuries in the athlete. Thanks a lot, and uh, look forward to talking again soon. Absolutely. Great stuff. Thanks, Dr. Vienz. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Join us for our 21st annual meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, PAOS in the Music City, September the 6th to September the 10th, 2021, at the Omni Nashville Hotel. Check PAOS.org for details.